here. I am Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare provider, this podcast is for you. This is where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. We do this through your stories and the stories of other professionals. We listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients right away. Today, I am talking with special guest, Robin Goebel. Robin is a clinical social worker by training, but now hosts and trains, consults, writes, and teaches hundreds of people on her online platform. And if you're lucky, in person too. She is the host of a popular podcast, Parenting After Trauma, and has a club for parents and other helpers, as well as a licensing program called Being With. Robin translates the complex science of relational neuroscience for helpers, healers, educators, and parents to make it practical, useful, and ultimately life-changing. She teaches powerful tools that help children's behavior and ultimately their connection to themselves and the adults in their lives. Welcome, Robin. I'm so glad you're here. Ah, Thanks for inviting me, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Me too. Okay. So that's your formal introduction. Um, I hope I did well by you. Um, anything else you want to add about who you are and what you do? I, I think you covered it all professionally pretty succinctly. In fact, I was like, dang, I should have had Amy write, write my bio. So you did great. Awesome. Awesome. And um, you're in Michigan? Yep. I live outside Grand Rapids, Michigan. My family and I relocated here about Oh gosh, three and a half years ago at this point. I can't believe it's been that long. Um, prior to that, uh, we lived and I worked in Austin, Texas for the entirety of my career. I was a private practice therapist specializing in working with kids with histories of complex trauma and their families. And when we decided we were, we were ready for just a lifestyle change Um, and I closed my practice in Austin. We relocated. And when we landed here in Grand Rapids, you know, I thought I would start, uh, you know, an, an outpatient practice eventually, but that pandemic thing happened (laughs) and I didn't really want to start a practice with kids, especially, um, Mm -hmm. in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so I really just leaned into, the work that I was doing in the interim, which was teaching and training and finding ways to connect with and impact ultimately like so many more families than I could while I was in private practice. And that's been so fun and so wonderful and so rewarding that I see myself just sort of staying, staying the course for now. Yeah. So tell us, how did you get into working with kids with trauma and how did that lead you to where you are today with your trainings? I think I've always wanted to work with kids with trauma though. When I was young high school graduates, you know, doing my education, I don't think I would have called it that, but I definitely always wanted to work with the kids that nobody else really wanted to work with or the kids that were, just really tough and nobody else knew what to do with. I was inspired by the um, memoirs of Tori Hayden when I was still in high school. And so I went to college and ultimately graduate school with 
that in mind. Like I wanted to work with those kids, the toughest kids. Um, and in graduate school, I did a lot of research on working with kids with um, reactive attachment disorder. So then that sort of was the direction I decided to go was working with kids that, with what we would now call complex developmental or attachment trauma. Um, and I was one of those people that I really never was a generalist. Like the moment I started practicing and working, I worked with that very specific population, kids who had been hurt and mm -hmm. ultimately were in, um, typically I worked with kids who were adopted and in new families and their families. I've always worked really closely with their families. And then of course I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was not prepared in any way, shape or form to work with kids with trauma, let alone kids with you know, the kind of complex developmental trauma that these kids had experienced. Mm -hmm. And I recognized that almost immediately, you know, once I left school and went to the real world, like, I, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing here. And I'm getting hurt at work. Yeah. So I just dove down deep into the rabbit hole of learning about attachment, specifically attachment trauma, um, you know, how trauma impacts the brain and the body. And then of course, how early trauma and complex developmental trauma impacts the brain and the body and the developing child. So that's a great little caveat for healthcare professionals who may be listening. How would you define complex trauma for them? Well, I've been, you know, trauma is a word that everybody has their own slightly different definition of. So when I think about just straight up trauma, recently I've been using Dr. Steve Porges's definition. Mm -hmm. He says trauma is anything that disrupts um, the individual's capacity or ability to feel safe. Yeah. Which Perfect. feels like the most accurate definition of trauma at this point. Mm -hmm. And then complex developmental trauma for me is about those experiences that are occurring repeatedly is specifically in those first early months and years of life and even before birth in utero. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we'll link up to Steve Porges in the show notes. Um, but you said, you know, I, you knew you really wanted to work with the toughest kids. Yeah. And I have seen enough of your work. I love how you describe like these big baffling behaviors. Yeah. Do they still feel so big and baffling to you? Or like, how do you frame it in a way that doesn't feel so overwhelming? I think the reason I am so drawn to these kids is they aren't overwhelming to me. I don't feel particularly baffling to me. In fact, I think they make perfect sense. <laughs> um, and I think that is kind of a combination of some of my training, but also my own history. Mm -hmm. And, but without question, they baffle everyone else and they baffle their parents. And actually I'm pretty sure if, if I was parenting, a child like this, I would feel really baffled too. I don't, it's, you know, when you're in the trenches like that 24 seven, um, it's pretty hard to stay really grounded and really see 
behavior for what it really is. But yeah, I mean, everybody else looks at these kids' behaviors and are just like, they don't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And so there is that level of confusion. And yes, that word baffling, um, folks have really resonated with um, me using that word, is then leaves the grownups feeling just so overwhelmed, out of control. They just have no idea what to do with these kids. Yeah. So you said, you know, it doesn't feel baffling to you anymore because you kind of understand it through this lens of relational neuroscience. Um, will you help my listeners understand what relational neuroscience is and, and how, why that's a helpful understanding for these really difficult to understand behaviors? Yeah. So relational neuroscience is the language we're using right now to describe a field of study that is looking at the relational, social, and behavioral brain. So there's a lot of stuff that the brain does. I know absolutely nothing about, (laughs) of course. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But really have honed in on, you know, how is the brain uh, responsible for or underneath or a part of these relational, social, and behavioral pieces of what it means to be human? And so for me, that started with the work of Dr. Dan Siegel that I was introduced to a long, long, long time ago with his field of interpersonal neurobiology. And now, I think the relational neuroscience is, is broader than just interpersonal neurobiology and includes just off my head, this is not going to be all encompassing, but things like affect regulation theory, Dr. Shore's work and polyvagal theory, Dr. Porges' work, the neurosequential model, like Dr. Perry's work, my mentor, Bonnie Badnock, you know, so these, there's more folks and theories that are contributing now to this bigger field of relational neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And with regards to these baffling behaviors for me, especially contrasted to like how I was trained and my assumption is probably how you were too, um, in the era of when we went to school and, and learned about behavior and psychology that, you know, relational neuroscience helps us understand that behavior is just what we can see on the outside that lets us know, like what's gives us some cues and clues. Mm-hmm. about what might be happening on the inside. You know, I think we used to think that behavior was mostly within our conscious control. Um, and now we understand that so much, essentially the majority of our behavioral impulses are indeed implicit. Behavioral impulses start long before we're ever thinking about them. And they're driven by Uh, a lot of things, but I focus mostly on our autonomic nervous system Mm -hmm. and helping parents and professionals see that we can look at this behavior. And instead of saying, focus on how do we stop this behavior? How can we can ask ourselves the question, what does this behavior mean about? And for me, I'm, I asked the question, what does this behavior mean about this person's regulation, their connection to themselves and to others and their experience of felt safety in the world. And then we can sort of target those things. And if we target regulation, we target connection, we target felt safety. Ultimately we settle the nervous system and the language I would use as eventually the kind of pro-social behaviors that we're all hoping to see in kids. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. will begin to emerge. Wow. So give us an example of what you mean by cues and clues, because if you're yes. listening right now, you you're hearing Robin's voice, but if you're watching the video, you'll see about a thousand books behind her. <laughs> And if I'm a physician, right, or nurse or healthcare professional, and I'm watching this, I'm like, I, I can't even begin to know all the things that are in that book. So like, tell me what, what does this look like? How does it manifest? Yeah. Well, let's use the behavior of opposition. I think that's an easy one Mm -hmm. to start with deconstructing that the behavior of opposition and noticing that a child is being, you know, non-compliant mm-hmm. or uncooperative, refusing to, you know, take care of what they're supposed to be taking care of. This that, is so good, Robin. This is every pediatric well-child visit right now. So I know, right? <laughs> you just hit it on the head. Okay. Yeah, go. <laughs> the, the behavior of opposition tells me, is it just a a clue about what might be happening underneath and in the nervous system that then creates this behavior that you or I or a parent or a physician would, would accurately label opposition. I'm not proposing that, that there isn't a behavior of oppositionality. Certainly behaviors, some behaviors are, are oppositional. But if I'm only looking at the behavior as just straight up, well, it's oppositional, then I'm taking a um, oftentimes pretty protocoled out like behavioral approach in an attempt to simply change that behavior without bringing to it the curiosity of why. So relational neuroscience holds at its, as its core tenets that connection is a biological imperative that we're all driven to be in connection. Mm-hmm. So clearly oppositional behavior is a behavior that keeps us out of connection or signals like, I don't want to be in connection with you. And so my curiosity to that is always, okay, but why? What's happening in the nervous system that is causing, and, and if we're talking about it at a well-child visit, we're probably talking about a pretty chronic Mm-hmm. level of oppositionality, you know, like certainly oppositional behavior that goes outside what we would expect and just developmentally appropriate behavior in, in kids. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, but why, like what, like kids want to have people connected to them. Kids want their parents to be connected to them. And I know sometimes our kids' behaviors, especially their chronic behavior, it absolutely feels like, no, they don't. This child wants anything Mm -hmm. but to be in connection. Mm -hmm. And I believe I I would never argue, you know, a parent who said that to me about their kid, but, but I would follow it up with, but why? Because as human beings, we need connection for our brains to develop. We need connections to survive and be okay in the world. And so it doesn't make sense to have a chronic behavior of rejecting connection if one needs connection to survive. So let's get super curious and go like, well, what's going on that is causing this, you know, chronic behavior that's keeping this child out of connection? Yeah. I love that term curious, right? So if there's something we could pull from that for a a medical provider, right? Who's working with a six-year-old with oppositionality or a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old, it's really partnering with the caregiver to say, let's be curious about what's behind that. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And then what? Okay. So I'm a mom and I'm curious. Um, and my, my family practitioner said, be curious. And now I realize like, okay, my child wants to connect with me. They're really pushing me away. They're really acting like they don't, but I'm trying to be curious. Now what? Well, so I, I put behaviors in the, and the drives for behavior that we don't like very much in three different categories. Yeah. Is this behavior about a lack of regulation, about a lack of connection or a lack of felt safety? So if we stay with oppositionality Mm -hmm. without question, I know in my own family, when I see more oppositional behavior than usual in my own son, One of the first things I ask, like once I finally am able to think clearly about it, I mean, at first we just are tussling about it. Like all families are like, why are you acting like this? And stop this. You know, we do that too. It's just like all families do. (laughs) And then when I can like catch my own breath and remind myself like, Hey, there's gotta be something going on here. Like what's going on underneath this. I first am asking myself, how is my connection with this child right now? How Am I, has my workload increased? Have I been traveling a lot more than usual? Has just like regular life been happening that's kept, you know, that we didn't even notice and like two weeks have gone by and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so distracted by this home renovation project we're working on. Or, you know, so that's always my, my first go-to is what's my connection like with this child? How available for connection with this child am I? Right. Starting with our Okay. Absolutely. And so when I'm working with families with kids with, you know, some oppositionality, that's one of the first places I'm going to look at and not with any shame or blame, you know, very much no shame, no blame here, but all of us, when we feel regularly out of connection with the people who matter most to us, our nervous system gets a little bit crabby Mm -hmm. and we all get a little punchy and we all get a little more oppositional when we're feeling out of connection from our closest people and from ourselves. Right. So, so that's kind of the first place I go with families is, okay, we're seeing this increase in oppositionality. Let's look at this, the relational piece. How is, how is the relational piece either in the moment of, you know, the oppositionality that's happening? Again, if this is a longer chronic problem, how's the relationship on a bigger perspective? Um, and sometimes that involves really asking ourselves some pretty hard questions and getting just really honest um, with ourselves about how how things have been lately. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons as a parent why we would f- be falling out of connection with our kids. Like life is so hard. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, with the the hundreds of healthcare professionals that I talk to, helping them validate just that for parents is a great start, right? Like it's okay for you to be dysregulated. It's okay for you to have horrible parenting moments where you feel, you know, like we didn't do that the right way. How do we restart? Um, and then like you said, being clear headed and saying, okay, let's go back to, and you said regulation, connection, and safety. Yes. So then from a regulation and a felt safety perspective, especially if I'm like a physician, I'm going to be thinking about what are all the things that parents aren't equipped to think about? Like what's going on inside this child, like, like biophysically, you know, and, and I'm often thinking about things that aren't being thought about in kind of traditional well child business. Like I'm thinking about 
um, you know, chronic infections, neuroimmune disorders, like what are some possible things that could be, be going on like underneath the surface? And it doesn't even have to be that complicated. It could be just like, what is this child eating for breakfast and lunch? And are they like my kid, I swear would walk out the door in the morning and I don't even know when he would eat for the first time during the day. Right. I mean, he's a teenager. He's like, mom, but that impacts him. Right. Like he can't go seven hours on a pop tart Gatorade. I I think that's what my teenager walked out with this morning. So again, this is no shame, no blame. I'm not criticizing parents for what their kids are eating, but it, but I, we also want to look at it, right? Like look at how you just as simple as hydration. Like, is your child having enough opportunity to drink throughout the day while they're at school? How often do they get a snack when your child is hungry? Do they have access to getting a snack? Do they have permission to get a snack? How much sleep is your child's getting, um, how much movement is your child getting right? Like kids, especially during the pandemic. I mean, our kids sit too long anyway at school, but then during the pandemic, right. It was like, they were decreasing the movement kids could have. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things can, can really pull like regulation. I'll say very clinically just out of whack. And then it impacts our body's sense of felt safety because our body is checking in on our internal systems all the time, right? Like how's my blood sugar? How's my temperature? Am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Do I have to pee? Am I rested? Am I, you know, do I, do I have some sort of chronic infection? Do I have something happening in my gut that nobody has assessed for yet? Do I have enough nutrients? You know, there's all these pieces underneath And if they're slightly off kilter, the nervous system is reading that as whoops, something's wrong here. And it kind of flips into what I would call like protection mode, not safe mode. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean the child is like actually not safe in their family. I mean, they might be, but it's a, it's a lack of safety from an inner experience. And so often oppositional behavior is about these, this physiological experience in the body where something is just not quite right. And that's what I've seen in my own family, right? You know, this, that my husband has a neuroimmune disorder and we saw we, and we do see even when he's flaring like oppositional behavior, he gets more defensive. He gets really grumpy and grouchy Right. And it's really easy for me to look at and be like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like, what's going on? Why are you acting this way? And I have to like, take a breath and remember like, oh, this behavior is a sign. It's a symptom that something's not right for him internally. Let's address that. So if I could summarize, I think something really important that you're saying, and that is if we could help parents get curious about their kids' behavior when they're otherwise not connected with us, right? Because if you kind of go off this premise that you said that all kids want to be connected, it's our biological imperative. Then if, if, if they're not, if we're not doing that, something else is going on. Absolutely. Okay. If they're behaving in a way that's making you not want to be very connected to them because we don't want to be with oppositional kids. It's like, gosh, stop acting this way. Right. And so that's a clue to me. That's a clue. Like 
something's not, something's not right here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you would say to a provider who says, okay, got it. But what about for the parent that never got it themselves? Mm-hmm. And now we have like intergenerational trauma that's happening. Do you start then with go back to the parent? I think we start with wherever the parent, and this is hard to know, of course, especially in a short little, you know, well child check. Mm -hmm. But in an ideal world, I say we start with wherever the parent is going to get the first dose of success. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, yeah, like we need, if we want to help people make change, we have to give them opportunities to make the kinds of changes that are available to them. Mm-hmm. And so for some families, I mean, it can be really clear that, wow, this family really needs therapy. Like mom, dad, grandma, who's ever taking care of these kids, like, wow, they really deserve therapy. And also we have to recognize that, you know, an hour a week of therapy for a parent or a caregiver is an enormous privilege for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. And so it's not super helpful to make, even though the recommendation is accurate, right? Yeah. It's not super helpful to make a recommendation that really isn't accessible to the family. Um, and so I'm doing my best to make really fast assessments about you know, could this, would this parent benefit from some very practical parenting interventions that feel doable? It helps them feel successful right away. Absolutely. Like that could, you know, have an impact Mm -hmm. in the, and then the parent would feel successful and be like, Oh, okay. Like I can handle this or I can make interventions in my parenting. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that that's my first thought is like, what would be something I could offer this family that would actually feel useful to them? I mean, some families come in and they're like, I've already done all this. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I know this. So I'm not going to start chucking out more parenting advice Mm -hmm. to them. It feels so misattuned. Mm -hmm. And instead I might say like something like, wow, yeah, you're right. There's got to be something else under, underneath all of this that we just haven't discovered yet. I don't know what it is, but something else is going on. Mm -hmm. And maybe your child does have some sort of unknown, like undiagnosed chronic infection or, you know, what, whatever I have to use my cues and clues from what they'd already told me. But my whole objective in that, especially that first Mm -hmm. contact is what's accessible to this family. What will actually help them feel really seen I love that approach so much, Robin. And I think the really cool thing is that now you're going upstream and you're saying, okay, now let's partner together and be curious together about what might be going on. And, you know, for people that listen to this podcast, I mean, that in and of itself is what it means to be trauma informed, right. To just watch for the clues and cues that are there and kind of be fluid if you can. Um, I think so. And to really believe families, I think that's something I hear so often from families who have kids with complex trauma histories or who have something that is more in the neuroimmune, um, you know, category, like a Lyme or a pan or a pandas or something Mm -hmm. like that is that they are, they feel traumatized by how their providers are minimizing their symptoms and complaints and continuing to 
you know, blame it on parenting or make the same referrals over and over and over again. And I think there's so much power, even in a mental, a, a medical professional and mental health too, of saying like, wow, I don't know what's going on with your kid, but I can tell that you have done, you know, X, Y, and Z already. And so I'm not going to keep recommending them. Mm-hmm. And I don't even, I'm not sure if I can help you and your kid. Like, I think there's so much power in just being straight up honest. Like, I'm not sure if I can, but I can tell that what's by you telling me what's going on in your family, that things are so hard right now. And if I can help you, I I absolutely will. Oh my gosh. You and I, I mean, like peas and carrots, right? Validate, validate, validate the experience of the parent or whoever, the caregiver, the resource parent, whoever's sitting in front of you, instead of handing out more tips and tricks, just positive thing. This is really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, I think that goes a long way. I'm sure you have, I know I have seen parents in tears just by having the helper that's in the room with you say, wow, yep. I, I haven't seen behavior like this in a while. This must feel really tough. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to just go backwards a little bit. You know, we're talking about trauma and complex trauma and how it presents. And sometimes working with healthcare providers, they're like, oh my gosh, this feels really tricky. Like, why is it important for them to be talking about trauma? Because it is a part of, oh, I mean, so many folks' stories involve some experience of trauma or toxic stress. And when we don't talk about it, we end up looking at things through the wrong lens Mm -hmm. and keeping folks on a path that's just not helpful to them. You know, it goes back to like Dr. Perry's what happened to you question, right? Like if we can approach everyone we're working with, with the belief that like Dr. Ross Green says, kids do well when they can. And my little saying is regulated, connected kids who feel safe are doing well. So if they're not doing well, like what's going on, you know, and if we can then for me, it's about more even than just being trauma informed or, you know, an understanding of toxic stress. It's about this relational neuroscience approach to trusting that people like Dr. Green says people do well what they can. And if they're not doing well, something's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I think just that perspective of itself, like one of the things I say is changing how we see people changes people. Oh. Right? And so to be yeah. with somebody who, who can honestly say like, yeah, these behaviors are bad, but it's not because this kid is bad. It's because yeah. something's not right. That that changes so much for the kid and for their family. But it also really keeps us focused on trying to solve what the real problem is. So instead of, you know, continuing down like the behavior management pathway, more sticker charts, more rewards, ultimately more things that end up causing more harm. I mean, the best of our intentions, obviously we only recommend stuff that we think is helpful, but because we aren't taking this kind of trauma-informed lens, we unintentionally are setting families up for more failure. Mm-hmm. And then that just tends like will compound 
the trauma that they're feeling um, and, and, and their lack of success and their right. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to highlight something you just said for people to really hear changing how we see people changes people. Is yeah. that how you said it? Yep. Yeah. Can you think of a time or a story in your practice or working with a kid or a family where you saw that in action? I feel, I mean, I'm like, I see that in every action. I mean, when we, the way we see people, the way we interpret their behavior, one of, first of all, that changes us. Yes. It changes how we respond. And if I'm assuming that a behavior is because, um, a kid is a bad kid who needs a better consequence. He needs a bigger punishment so that he will be motivated to act better. That changes how I approach that child. It changes my energy and how I respond to his behavior. It also changes my interpretation of his behavior. And ultimately it even changes that child and their behavior because we behave in ways that people are expecting us to behave Mm -hmm. because behavior is largely implicit and it's happening so much out of conscious awareness. And, and before we're even doing things, we know what we know what's expected and we Mm -hmm. do it. And that's the same. If somebody expects me to be a bad kid or someone expects me to be a good kid, who's just really struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so I mean, the most personal spin I can give on it is like in my, again, in my own family, we've had this just, extremely difficult journey with my husband and his neuroimmune disorder. And without question, like what has saved my marriage and and ultimately even my family is my belief that he is not his behavior. Mm -hmm. And that not only has that held our family together and allowed me to be able to like stick around and offer more co-regulation, but it's changed his perception of himself mm-hmm. because when you struggle with your behavior that you can't control for a long time, you start to believe that you're just a really bad person mm-hmm. who's got, yeah, just a terrible person. Mm-hmm. And so part of what my husband has needed is for me to stay really anchored in that is not true. Like you have an illness and the symptom is behavioral. That's all it is. You're and and he has needed me to stay anchored in that so he can see himself like through my eyes. Wow. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true for so many families. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, one one question before we do some rapid fire. I'm sure you hear from lots of families and lots of helpers and lots of people that you train things that healthcare professionals do really well to help families and things that they really can mess up or get wrong. Um, and again, no shame or blame, but I do think people look for practical tools here. And so what's one thing that you hear that is going really well in the world of medicine. And one thing that you just wish would stop. One thing that's going really well in the field of medicine is that more and more physicians are taking a broader lens on kids' behaviors. And instead of making a really quick judgment on like, this kid just needs better discipline, even again, even if they can't diagnose the problem in that moment, there is at least a pause of, wow, 
I don't know what's happening in your family, but let's like put our heads together because you've already done all of this. Let's put our heads together and see what you haven't done yet. I mean, I really, truly am hearing that more and more and more often of physicians being willing to, to set aside, you know, their, their handouts or their, you know, quick tips and tricks that, uh, desperately struggling family is just like, Oh, I tried this nine years ago. Right. Yeah. Didn't work then. And it's not working now. <laughs> exactly. So I really have seen so much shifting in that without question. And then I think the thing that is still really hard is when parents are desperately, you know, looking for support in their kids' behaviors that are you know, parents are at risk of losing their jobs because they're late for work or because they're getting called out of work so much. They're at risk of their kids getting expelled from school, right? Like they're so overwhelmed at like the extreme negative consequences that could come from their kids' behaviors and not just their kids' consequences, but like the consequences for their family. Mm-hmm. And then they're given parenting advice about punishments, consequences, you know, ignoring bad behavior or the, yes, (laughs) yes. Which, you know, we can debate whether these are useful or not useful just in general, but certainly for the family that is in that level of chronic crisis, to just, to me, it's like, it's like to just trust the family that if a handout on timeouts was going to be helpful, like they wouldn't even be in your office in this moment. And I know that so often we do those things because we don't know what else to do. And so really, truly like my best like advice maybe is it's okay to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, every family that I work with, would say and have said they would be so relieved if a, if a provider would truly take, be honest and say, I don't know how to help you mm-hmm. instead of tossing out more, you know, timeouts and Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so much more compassionate, right? It's so much more validating. Um, Okay. So that's a perfect segue into rapid fire. And I think you've kind of answered this, but I, you're so brilliant. I want to give you another round of it. So what's one thing you think folks get wrong about trauma? That it is a thing that happened once and that people need a short period of time to get over it. And then it doesn't impact them anymore. Yeah. Yes. Agree. (laughs) Um, seeing everything that, that you've, you know, done in your work and the families that you work with Robin, if you looked back and you got to go back and talk to young Robin, baby therapist, Mm -hmm. um, what would you say to her? I would say, oh gosh, that feels almost a little bit emotional. Mm. I would, this is so hard and you are doing an awesome job with what you have available to you. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that you don't know what to do with these kids and families. And you'll learn a lot of cool things to help them, but actually 
young Robin, the most important thing you give these families is just you. Like just keep showing up, just keep being authentic, just keep being honest, just keep loving them. And the tools and techniques kind of come easy mm-hmm. after that. Wow. And it's super hard to trust that when you're brand, brand new in the field. Well, and I have to say, like seeing all of the incredible work you do now for families and kids and professionals, it's no wonder you walk them on that same path. Yeah, you really do. I hope so. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so, um, so often in healthcare, uh, people get intimidated by professionals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you shared vulnerabilities already, but will you tell, uh, the audience, like what's one thing that makes you a messy human? What's one thing that makes you perfectly imperfect as a human? Oh my gosh. Everything. (laughs) I mean, I am so comfortable with my human humanity in that I mess up all the time. I mess up as a partner. I have my husband, my husband was on my podcast talking about uh, his experience with like yeah. our experience with his, I heard him. Yeah. yeah. And he, he gave me an F <laughs> like he said, or maybe an F plus I get it. You know, I approach him in the way that I would tell other people to approach dysregulated people. He's like, yeah, you probably do that about 5% of the time. Yeah. And we were, we were being like very f- loving towards each other. This was not critical. It was just honest. Mm-hmm. That like, I can know all these things. And when the rubber meets the road, it's just hard Yes, and life is hard. And some days I show up and I show up great for the people in my personal life, including myself. And some days I do a terrible job at it. And I believe so passionately in the power of repair mm-hmm. and that the messiness of being human is what makes relationships so rich and so deep when we are brave enough and vulnerable enough to vulnerable enough to do that repair piece. Agree. Agree. Um, last question. It's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What do you reach for? (sighs) (laughs) Mm, Chocolate for sure. Chocolate. Are you dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Oh, it depends <laughs> on, on what it's going to come in. If I'm going to eat a cookie, I want it to have milk chocolate in it. Mm-hmm. But if I'm just going to eat like a nugget of chocolate, I'm going to go for dark. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to link up to all of the things, uh, all the ways to reach Robin um, in the show notes, your your website and ways to work with you um, so that people can know that. Um, but I just want to thank you, Robin, from the bottom of my heart um, for being your messy human self and for what I know because I listen to your podcast and I follow you um, is changing the world for kids and families. Just you're normalizing and you're validating and you're beautiful in those spaces. So thank you for what you give back to the world. I really, I want y'all to go and check out Robin and all the things she's doing. Thank you. Well, thanks for saying all that, Amy, and right back at you, of course, and all the important, amazing work and 
and that we also can be connected to each other. That is such an important part of this, that, that there's, you know, a handful of us that are with each other behind the scenes. And so I'm grateful for you in my life, as well as in the lives of all of the people that you help and touch. Oh, thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. We'll talk soon.